Well, this morning, as I said, I want to look at, finally, to wrap up this idea of social media and the Christian, uh, the internet, uh, social media, all of the things that come with technology and spiritual disciplines. And I want to begin first by looking at two broad categories that present uh, dangers to our spiritual life. The dangers and temptations that come through the internet, social media, our phones, and all of the things associated with it. Uh, After looking at these two, then we'll briefly look at a few of the spiritual disciplines that I think are most central and foundational uh, in terms of uh, providing a basis for all of the rest. Uh, The first danger that I want to consider is that of distractions. Distractions. Now, these things, of course, have been talked about here and there throughout each of these messages, but I want to focus on them uh, more specifically. One is, uh, first, is distractions. What is a distraction? A distraction could be defined, this is our good old trusty apple, again, as a thing that prevents someone from giving full attention to something else. A thing that presents someone from giving full attention to something else. That's a, that's a pretty good definition of a distraction. Another describes it this way. All of the immediately pressing details of our daily lives, relationships, and apparent duties. Anything that preoccupies our attention on this world and life. A distraction can come in many forms. A new amusement, a persistent worry, or a vain aspiration. It is something that diverts our minds and hearts from what is most significant. Anything which monopolizes the heart's concerns. That's a pretty good description of distractions. Actually, taking from 12 ways your phone is changing you, which is in the book Nook. It's a short advertisement there for those who are interested. It's a great, great book. I would recommend it to you. But here it is, something that last statement catches it, which monopolizes the heart's concerns. Monopolizes the heart's concerns. That is a distraction. So one of the most obvious, frustrating, and pervasive influences of this immediate access to the internet is the endless stream of distractions it introduces into our lives. As is mentioned before, one of the great dangers that or temptations presented by the internet is this ability to immediately gratify or satisfy every whim that we have, whether it be something as benign as curiosity of a fact or other things. It's immediately available for us. Every whim can be enacted upon, and the internet offers us a seemingly infinite number of options. Uh, To illustrate this, and I think even as I read this, we'll all connect at this to some level. But this is an account that one reporter gave in a newspaper of uh, after a car ride home, a 12-minute car ride from school to home. And this person was riding uh, with a 13-year-old girl and gives this accounting of it. Her thumb is on Instagram. A Barbara Walters meme is on the screen. She scrolls and another meme appears. Then another meme and she closes the app. She opens BuzzFeed. There is a story about Florida Governor Rick Scott, which she scrolls past to get to a story about Janet Jackson. Then 28 things you'll understand if you're both British and American. She closes it. She opens Instagram. She opens the NBA app. She shuts the screen off. She turns it back on. She opens Spotify, opens Fitbit. She has 7,427 steps, 
opens Instagram again, opens Snapchat. She watches a sparkly rainbow flow from her friend's mouth. She watches a YouTube star make pouty faces at the camera. She watches a tutorial on nail art. She feels the bump of the driveway and looks up and they're home. That's amusing in one sense and it's also extremely, extremely sad in another sense. That is the mind, that is the character, that is the distraction that is introduced into the lives of our children and to our very own. And it comes with great consequences. Sadly, this is a common snapshot of teens and I would suggest many adults who turn to that same kind of endless distraction the minute we have a spare minute or think that we might have two, three, four, five, or ten minutes with nothing to do. And the phone then becomes this immediate access to essentially what amounts to, in most cases, mindless distraction. And this is again all available through, the, to the, through access to the internet through our phones. Uh, Tony Renke, again in 12 Ways, makes this uh, good observation. He says, we check our smartphones about 81,500 times a year. Can you imagine that? Over 81,000 times a year. Or once every 4.3 minutes of our waking lives. It's no wonder we habitually grab our phones first thing in the morning, not only to turn off our alarms, but also to check an email and social media in a half-conscious state of sleep inertia before our groggy eyes can fully open. More than half of the respondents to a survey he did, now he did this, he works for Desiring God, so he did this uh, from Desiring God readers. So that is a select uh, uh, group to, to survey. But nonetheless, even from those, uh, he, his survey yielded these results. More than half of the respondents, 54%, admitted to checking a smartphone within minutes of waking. When asked whether they were more likely to check email and social media before or after spiritual disciplines on a typical morning, 73% said before. This reality is especially concerning if the morning is when we prepare our hearts spiritually for the day. In other words, it's just taken over. It's taken over with an endless amount of distractions, an endless call that we feel so often inside that draws us and beckons us to check our phones and the screen, to have this immediate access to whatever our hearts desire. Now, while many things could be commented on, the primary danger of this tsunami of distraction brought to you by the Internet is this. It trivializes life and it blinds us to the reality of God, the true reality of God. The, the, The end effect of this constant trivialization and distraction is that it makes light of eternal things and, in fact, blinds us to those things which are of eternal consequence, namely the glory of God himself And the gospel. This is the effect that it has. In short, it hides the gospel, which is, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It hides us from the true riches and the abundance of spiritual life that is in Christ alone. It blinds us and distracts us from the fact that our lives are actually going to be presented before Christ. That's an eternal mindset. That our lives are lived, as Hebrews 4 says, before the one with whom we have to do. 
And again, the one we will one day stand before to present our moments and our days. It blinds us to the effulgent light of Christ's glory by the sparkles of distraction with things that quickly pass and offer no more than a fleeting moments of empty pleasure. Did anything that girl, that 13-year-old girl, pursued on the car ride home provide for her lasting satisfaction? No. It's like eating hard candy. You go from one to the next to the next. It's not the spiritual nutrition that our souls truly long for and that we need. And it's not that all the things by which we are distracted are in themselves bad or evil. They're, they're not. Rather, it is that we too often let them take over and replace the most essential things. And that becomes the more important issue. It replaces such things as solitude, aloneness with the Lord, silence, meditation, prayer, spiritual thoughts that go deeper than immediate impressions or what can be quickly consumed like a spiritual drive through at a fast food restaurant. A quick tweet, a quick Bible verse, a quick verse for the day that might flash on our phones. That for many people, because of this endless distractions, becomes the sum total of their spiritual disciplines and their spiritual lives. And that is not good. And it has detrimental effects. Again, it is an immediate gratification that blinds to eternity and eternal joys, to eager wisdom that lives in light of Christ's return. True distractions include anything, even a good thing, this is a quote, that veils our spiritual eyes from the, shortened, the shortness of time and from the urgency of the season of heightened expectations as we await the summing up of all history. When we can immediately and constantly put before our minds a YouTube video, a silly meme, the latest news story, or whatever gossip might be floating around on the internet or checking our emails, how in the world can we have a heart attuned to the reality of Christ's return? To the glory of the gospel of him who sits at the right hand of God right now and in whom is our life. How can we gain the wisdom of righteousness and of truth and spiritual depth if our minds don't go beyond what we constantly are distracted with on our phones? How can we think, as Paul said, of the summing up of all things in Christ? Or Peter, who exhorts us to gird up the loins of our minds for action, to keep sober in spirit, to fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or Paul who says to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. It becomes very difficult with the distractions that are constantly paraded for before us in our present age. It's not as if we can completely rid ourselves of distractions, but it does mean we need to be very aware of them. We need to be aware when our digital time is eating up mental and spiritual energy that could be used for the spiritual, spiritual disciplines that actually draw us to the truth, to Christ, to eternity, when it is eating up the precious little time we have. So the first danger that I would identify is this constant temptation toward distraction and what is trivial and what is superficial, keeping our minds from those things that are the true food for our soul and the true realities. We tend to frame our worldview, whether intentionally or not, Again, by whatever media or YouTube or Twitter or Instagram or those things present, rather than by the deep truths of the Word of God. Secondly, then, it eats up time. 
Social media, internet use, and our phones eat up our use of time. Time is a precious gift and one for which we are again accountable to God. Thomas Watson, an old divine, said this, A man has no time for that which he is not accountable to God. If his very diversions are not governed by reason and religion, he will one day suffer for the time he has spent in them. That's a great statement. Here's at least what stands out to me from that. By the dangers of diversions that are not governed by reason. In other words, diversions which are not the fruit of a discerning heart towards what will produce the greatest spiritual reality in us. And we have, again, an endless number of things to take away time. Now, how important is time? Well, it's extremely important, not only when we consider the accountability that we have to God for the time that He's given us and how we use it, but also when we think of the shortness of it. Listen to a few statements. This is by David. In Psalm 39, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Moses said this in Psalm 90, As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. James says it like this. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We have a very few years and days on this earth. And we do not know when they will be taken. Some of us are aware of a friend of ours who was taken immediately. uh, In what would be considered the prime of his life. There was a funeral for him yesterday. A godly man, uh, a fairly young man with seven children. He's about 48, I think. Went in for cancer treatment, caught early on. Had uh, the treatment that they gave him at the hospital and died days later. Like that. Our days are numbered. Our days are numbered. We do not know whether they will live with strength to be 70, 80, or 90. Or whether they will be taken from us tomorrow. We don't know. Time is a gift of God and needs to be used with wisdom and used well. It's measured by Him. It's accountable to Him. And of course, time to say that isn't to say that within the time that God has allotted us, that it is not to include rest and relaxation and enjoyment of the gifts that He gives us, particularly in relationships and family and so forth. It does, however, mean that even as we enjoy it in that sense, we are always to remember that we do so under the watchful eye of God. Uh, I think of this verse in Ecclesiastes. He says this. You're familiar with it. It's at the end of Ecclesiastes. Uh, I'll get there. He says this. Ecclesiastes 12. The conclusion, when all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. In other words, enjoy the good life and the good things in life God has given you. Learn from the blessings, learn from the difficulties, but remember that we're accountable for it all. 
Probably the clearest expression of this is in Ephesians 5, where Paul says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. And so the question to us is this, how well do you manage your time specifically as you measure the use of your time against your habits with social media and the computer and the internet? In other words, compare their use of time in how much you spend on things the internet provides through the media that you can access through it as opposed to the time that you spend in prayer the time you spend in God's Word, the time you spend in service and ministry to others. The temptation to waste time on social media or Internet is a widely recognized reality. And not only by Christians. Justin Rosenstein, who was actually the creator of the like button for Facebook, uh, he himself lamented this, that his invention is a contributor to time poorly spent. Time poorly spent. Let me just illustrate this in one other way, the way that this uh, can take over. Uh, Again, this is from, I had mentioned this book earlier, Jean Twinge. The book is iGen. She says this, iGen high school seniors spent an average of two and one quarter hours a day texting on their cell phones, about two hours a day on the internet, and one and a half hours a day on electronic gaming, and about a half hour on video chat in the most recent survey. And this book was actually published in 2017, so that would be recent. That totals six hours a day with new media. Eighth graders, eighth graders, junior hires, were not far behind spending one and, one, one and a half hours a day texting, one and a half hours a day online, and one and a half hours a day gaming, and about half an hour on video chat, a total of five hours a day with new media. Considering that teens spend about 17 hours a day in school sleeping and on homework and school activities, nearly all of their leisure course are now spent with new media. The hour and a half that's left is used up by TV, which teens watch about two hours a day. She then notes, of course, this makes it look as if there are more than 24 hours in their day, but more than likely they are multitasking, texting while they are surfing the web, watching TV while posting to Instagram. Sound familiar? That is the pressure and the waster and the stealer of time that is on our children. And of course, there's, again, the, the variety of ways that we can spend it. Some of that can be profitable, of course. The, what's not being advocated is an absence of access to the Internet and all that it's offers. There's many helpful things, but that tends to be very the lesser part of what we use it for. Usually it's on silly videos, endless blogs, news feeds, and entertainment, and social updates, and countless other distractions. And in fact, as I've mentioned before, the very design of the internet, online games, apps, and social media is to keep your mind engaged through the just one more attitude. The what else is there to discover kind of attitude. That has both effects on our soul and it has physiological effects that Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and other companies on the internet invest a massive amount of time and financial resources into designing their sites just to keep people on the internet. In light of the gospel then, we need to be aware of the temptation to waste time that the internet provides to us. That is the main point. Let me, let me just, before we move on to spiritual disciplines, make this note as well. 
There are three primary ways that the temptations of social media or our connection to the internet come. Let me just mention to them, you, them to you. You maybe can think of others, but these are three that at least impress themselves to me and as categorical or foundational ways. One is through the constant concern for how one is perceived by or connected to others. That's social media. That's social media. That constant pressure that we've mentioned of how we're being perceived or presenting ourselves to others. Two, by the endless distraction of immediate access to information. By the endless distraction of immediate access to information. And a third way that we find this temptation is by the ever-present opportunity for passive entertainment. Passive entertainment, endless access to information, and a constant concern about connectivity in turn the context of relationships. Those three provide powerful, powerful uh, temptations to us. Each of these demand our time and reveal our commitments and our loves. In other words, to spend time then pursuing those things, we have to give up other things. Again, if I could mention uh, Blase Pascal, who said this. He was an old philosopher, but he has a lot of helpful things to say along these lines. He says this in one of his works. The Stoics say, go back into yourselves. There you will find peace. And it is not true. Others say, go out, look for happiness in some distraction. And that is not true. Illness is the result. Happiness is neither outside us nor within us. It is in God, and that both outside and within us. In other words, what he's pointing to even back in his day is that there are many things that vie for our happiness that promise pleasure, but they don't deliver. Pleasure was only ever designed to be found in God himself, and that through Christ So to look for joy by retreating within ourselves will only bring anxiety. To seek joy by the distractions of our phones via the internet will not satisfy either, at least not for long. Happiness and joy are alone in God. As the psalmist says, in your presence is fullness of joy. And so that then leads us into the second part of spiritual disciplines. This is where spiritual disciplines come in. And have to be put in then into the light of how we manage our lives and structure our lives for those things which are truly eternal. All the effort of spiritual disciplines is not for to be an end in themselves, and neither is it sacrificing a greater pleasure. In other words, when we come and approach this idea of spiritual disciplines, it's not like I have to give up the really good things because I have to do this dutiful thing, this thing that I should do before God. And so I'm sacrificing pleasure to do my duty. That would be an exactly wrong way to think of spiritual disciplines. If it seems to us a bummer and a discouragement even to have to give up time on Facebook, YouTube, or Netflix for a lesser but necessary dutiful spiritual discipline, then we are not understanding our relationship with God. To apply ourselves to spiritual disciplines is to manifest that we are seeking, in fact, our highest and our greatest joy, which is Christ and God through Christ. A right view, then, of spiritual disciplines is to say, I see these things that are a distraction and a waste of time as actually not the pleasures I must give up to do my duty, 
but in fact the things that rob me of my greatest pleasure, which is to be with Christ and to be spend time in his presence and to grow in knowing him. So then, spiritual disciplines. What are they and why are they important? What are they and why are they important? Well, let me repeat this, that the key or essential point in spiritual disciplines is this. They reveal in our application of them what our hearts most long after. What we most believe is our greatest good and highest joy. Our application of spiritual disciplines reveal our affections and what we most strongly long for. The psalmist of Psalm 73 says this, ASAP, in verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. Now, when ASAP said that in Psalm 73, you're familiar probably with it, many of you. It's against the backdrop of the luxury and the carelessness and the ease that the world seems to have. The world and those who reject God. So living a, a sinful life, rejecting God, and yet seeming to have such ease and pleasure. The constant allurements of entertainment and the internet and all it has to offer provides for us that same kind of pull. In other words, it is a pull to focus on the world, to focus on the trivial, to focus on those things which have nothing to do with God and yet promise pleasure. And then it can form in our hearts then a kind of idolatry. Tony Winky again says this, In the digital age, we idolize our phones when we lose the ability to ask. And this is key, catch this. In the digital age, we idolize our phones when we lose the ability to ask if they help us or hurt us in reaching our spiritual goals. Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked that question, is my media use and my use of phone actually feathering my walk of holiness and communion with the Lord or distracting from it? He goes on to say, we grow so fascinated with techno- technological Advances that we become captivated to the wonderful means of our phones, their speed, organization, and efficiency. And these means themselves become sufficient ends. In other words, the distraction and the entertainment and so forth that it offers is an end in itself. So if we never take the time to ask whether our phones are helping us reach our spiritual goals, our to advance our spiritual life or hindering it, most likely it means that we do not have a clear spiritual and discerning awareness of our spiritual fellowship with God, our spiritual state. If there's not a spiritual target that we're aiming for, then we are surely missing it and letting it be replaced by the internet and our phones or any other thing. Let me then mention just a few spiritual disciplines. A few spiritual disciplines. And we'll do this briefly as we get ready for uh, the Lord's table. Now, there are many spiritual disciplines and and things that are identified as spiritual disciplines. But I've pulled out only three. Three. And they're they're really interconnected. While they can each be talked about separately and distinctly. Because they have uh, qualities that make them uh, their own discipline. Uh, They are, in fact, all interconnected and combined and so forth. But... I'm going to identify at least three specific disciplines that are probably most threatened by the current uh, availability of the internet and our phones and and so forth. 
Uh, the first one, you could probably guess it, is prayer. It's prayer. Prayer. If there's one thing about prayer, it is that it takes time. And that, of course, is a theme that runs through all of these. Prayer takes a commitment of time. Now, of course, there is the praying without ceasing that Paul calls us to. There is that that sense of prayer that is beyond just a structured time of prayer away from other distractions. That should be the flavor of our entire lives, that we're always living in an ongoing fellowship with the Lord who is present with us and in whose presence we live before. But prayer... Prayer as a discipline is something that takes time. Pastor Tim Keller, this is a quote, this was noted in one author. Pastor Tim Keller was once asked online, Why do you think young Christian adults struggle most deeply with God as a personal reality in their lives? He replied this, Noise and distraction. It's easier to tweet than to pray. The author noted, however, that he said this on Twitter. (laughs) No less. (laughs) But putting that aside, he goes on to say, the ease and immediacy of Twitter is no match for the patient labor of prayer. And the neglect of prayer makes God feel distant in our lives. Does God feel distant in your lives? Does the reality of a live and living fellowship and communion with him seem like a distant kind of hope, not the reality that you live with? It may be because this is a discipline that's neglected and has been replaced with the endless distractions that come through the internet. I would add one more thing to what uh, Tim Keller said here, and it's this. And it's just another layer of it. And it comes from James, and James 4.3 he says this, You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. How does that connect? Social media and the endless options offered by the internet, again, have a great allure in this, that they offer immediate gratification. And that immediate gratification fosters and pollutes our hearts and mindsets with the same attitude toward God, a worldly kind of attitude toward God. In other words, with the internet and social media, I can go ask and manipulate and have my desires immediately met, right? There's a certain draw to that but prayer doesn't function that way does it prayer is of a totally different nature when we pray to god we must labor we must wait we must trust we must submit to his holy and wise will that may work contrary to our own and in that contrariness shape our will to his it may work contrary to what we think we want so that through God's providences and our laboring with Him, He can bring our desires into line with His own so that we should want the things we truly want that are truly best for our soul. Do you see how that works against it? When we have the internet, we can have immediate gratification, but prayer requires labor. It requires patience. It requires waiting. It requires submission. The internet and access to it requires none of those things, just the opposite. Moreover, the true satisfaction and joy of prayer is not even in getting the thing I'm requesting. 
The real joy and satisfaction of prayer is that we have spent time alone with God. John says this. uh, In 1 John, he says that he's proclaiming what they've seen and heard. And he gives his purpose uh, for their proclamation. He says this, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. Let me ask you, how many times have you gone into a time of prayer heavy, anxious, worried, burdened, weighted down with whatever, only to leave after a time of prayer with God rested, refreshed, encouraged, comforted in your heart? Nothing has been answered at that point. Nothing has been given. Merely you have received the joys and the benefit of communion with God, who is our wisdom, who is our hope, who is our sovereign Lord. You see, that is how prayer works. It's not merely about getting things from God. It is about spending time in His presence. And a healthy spiritual life that knows the joy of communion is rather not distracted by this endless emptiness offered to us on the internet, but rather finds a mind distracted about an eagerness to spend time alone with God in prayer. Does that sound absolutely backwards to the experience of many in our culture, maybe our own lives at different times? We, in fact, sometimes think of the idea of spending time alone with God in prayer and giving up Netflix, YouTube, social media, Facebook, whatever it might be, as something that causes anxiety, rather than seeing those things as something that causes anxiety because they might keep us from communion with God. You see how that gets all turned around. Our time with God is where our joy lies. We were saved, eternal life, and given eternal life, which is to know Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. We must discipline ourselves then for prayer. Discipline ourselves for prayer. George Mueller on this point says this. The great fault... Do you all know George Mueller? He was that great, great German man who was a, a model of prayer for us. He had orphanages that were supplied, not by asking needs only because of him constantly laying his needs before God. I would encourage you to read a biography on him. Uh, But anyway, he says this, The great fault of the children of God is this, They do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. If they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. Oh, how good and kind and gracious and condescending is the one with whom we have to do. He has given me, unworthy as I am, immeasurably above all that I ask or thought. That is the great privilege of prayer. Access to God. And we should go to prayer then with the attitude and even acknowledging it that we have no right to enter into this presence of God. It is a privilege that has been purchased for us by Christ and by the Son. So we must be discerning then and ask yourself, how does your prayer life and the time spent in communion with God compare to the time spent on the internet, media, or social media? in her social media or whatever. And I think then we could even ask a deeper question. How much does my heart and do my affections 
How much do they draw me to time alone in communion with God as opposed to these other things? Let me mention a second spiritual discipline that goes with that. That is that of silence and solitude. And these are mentioned together. Silence and solitude. A silence and solitude are among the most neglected disciplines and to many the most intimidating. Why? Well, let me give you one reason why. Uh, Why is that so intimidating, silence and solitude, to many in our culture? Because of fear. Because of fear. To many, the idea of silence and solitude, being alone with God and yourself, is frightening. One author mentioned this. The fear of being alone petrifies people. Our fear of being alone drives us to noise and crowds. Isn't that true? For many people, the idea of being alone or quiet without some kind of distraction is frightening. It's fearful to the heart. That's true for unbelievers. It can be true for the Christian. The fear of being bored. That we especially see in our children. The fear of silence. And yet it is that solitude and silence that our souls most need and really desire. Because in it there is freedom. There's freedom. There's freedom to rest in God. There's freedom to enjoy Him. Freedom from the bondage of entertainment. Freedom from the bondage of peers and the social pressure that comes with that. And freedom from the bondage of distraction. Freedom from the bondage of needing constant entertainment and passive gratification. Solitude challenges that. It challenges that. And it offers freedom. One author said this, Unlike previous generations, technology now makes it possible for us to enjoy the benefits of news, music, educational content, and more whenever we want and wherever we are. But the downside is that the appeal and accessibility of these things means the elimination of almost all quiet spaces in our lives. More than any generation in history, we must discipline ourselves to enjoy the blessings of silence and solitude. And again, this is especially so with our children and with teenagers. I'd mentioned this early on in the first message, but one of the, what we've mentioned several times, and this is universally recognized, this direct correlation that exists between the advent of social media and iPhones and access to the internet and teen depression and suicides. Uh, that, that is really an unarguable fact by anybody on any side of the, the equation. There is a dramatic rise in depression and what the world would call mental illness And suicide that directly connects to the accessibility of social media and the internet and through the phones. There's also a direct connection between time spent on phones and social media with teenagers and even adults and depression. There's a direct connection. And one of the reasons for that, there are many things that could be said about that. But one reason is that what it provides is this ubiquitous presence of our peers. In other words, before those things were available, there was a time to escape, 
to be somewhere else. A teenager could come home and go to their room and they were free, at least in that same haven of the four walls of their home and their family. But those things have been eliminated when there's this constant presence of the phone. They're never away from it. There's the constant reality of what they're not doing, what they're not a part of, what somebody else is doing, and so on and so forth. And there's this pressure that becomes unrelenting to their conscience and to their heart. And for many, it simply is overbearing. Solitude is the answer to that. Teaching ourselves and our children that it's good and necessary to spend time alone and to be alone. Alone before God in his presence and before his word. This requires then a purposeful, intentional, and deliberate act of the will to distance ourselves and have a space away from our phones, our tablets, and our computers to be alone with God. Psalm 62, 1 through 5 says this, My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. My soul waits in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. Of course, here the psalmist isn't merely speaking about silence in terms of not speaking words, but he's, he's identifying a condition of his soul. And there is a sense there of where it's a silence in which he has rested himself into God's sovereign care for his life and he's not murmuring and complaining, but he's silent before God in trust and rest and faith. Calvin commenting on this verse says this, The silence intended is, in short, that composed submission of the believer in the exercise of which he acquiesces to the promises of God gives place to his word bows to his sovereignty and suppresses every inward murmur of dissatisfaction. Again, it's a condition of a soul that reflects a settled trust in God, a rest in his presence to which silence and solitude cultivate. Now, we certainly uh, don't, don't go down the line with everything St. Francis of Assisi said, but there is one thing that was helpful, and that is this, and it's one that, uh, it, was, it was good insight we're familiar with. What a man is before God, that he is and nothing more. What a man is before God, that he is and nothing more. And so when we have those moments of silence, when we have those moments of solitude, when we have those moments when we're alone with none but God and ourselves and his word, what does our heart most reveal about us? Is that a thing desired or is it a thing frightful to us? Our hearts and inward thoughts when alone in God in solitude is the truest measure of our spiritual life and fellowship. And so for a vibrant spiritual life, this is something longed after. Jesus demonstrated this discipline often in his own life. Just a few examples of this. As he often went off to find lonely and desolate places to spend alone with the Father. Mark 1.35 tells us this, Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. He wanted to be alone. Matthew 14.23 tells us this about Christ. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. He sought solitude. He sought solitude to be alone only with himself and with God. Many of the great saints through the ages have displayed the same discipline in pursuit of fellowship with him. Jonathan Edwards is recorded as saying this, come are, come are, Some are greatly affected from time to time when in company, 
but have nothing that bears any manner of proportion to it in secret, in close meditation, secret prayer, and conversation with God when alone and separated from all the world. In other words, we can have great affections in the company of people, but how often can we have those affections alone with God and spiritual experiences? He goes on to say, A true Christian doubtless delights in religious fellowship and Christian conversation and finds much to affect his heart in it. But he also delights at times to retire from all mankind, to converse with God in solitary places. And this also has its peculiar advantage for fixing his heart and engaging its affections. True religion disposes persons to be such alone in a solitary place for holy meditation and prayer. It is the nature of true grace that however it loves Christian society, yet it is in a peculiar manner delights in retirement and secret converse with God. Our phones, our internet, the things that we can access through there can have a positive use. We can access the writings of great Christian authors right there. We can access God's word on our phones and we can access helpful things that other people tweet or email or so on and so forth. And those things all have their place and all have a certain usefulness. But the question is, how able are we and how much do those things actually advance our spiritual life? And how much can that be seen when we can spend time alone with God and bear the fruit of sweet fellowship with Him? of sweet meditation on his word and delight in his presence. And this is actually just a footnote. I would personally suggest, this is only my personal opinion, so you can take it or leave it, that it is good to develop the habit, as much as we can access these good things through our phones, you know, the Bible and so on and so forth, and and that obviously has a place, I would suggest that we learn to set aside time without our devices. In other words, not to plan on solitude and time alone with God's word by having it on your phone, but actually on the written page. Because it it opens up too many other distractions. There's too many options to uh, be distracted, to check other things, and so on and so forth. That's just a personal opinion. Let me go for a third. So the first, in terms of spiritual disciplines and our exercise of them in light of the distractions and temptations of media, there's prayer, There's silence and solitude, and then there's meditation. And let me me mention these briefly. Uh, Meditation could be, uh, meditation has been described as this way from an old author. Uh, Meditation is the life call of religion and that which puts life into all other duties. Unlike the popular Eastern influenced ideas of meditation, biblical meditation is not clearing our minds, but rather filling them with biblical truth. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Meditation in concert with reading scripture and silence and solitude and prayer requires the ability to focus, to remove the noise and distraction of the mind and heart, allowing it to focus exclusively on Scripture in the presence of God and in the context, again, of fellowship and prayer. 
One defined meditation like this. As deep thinking on the truths and spiritual reality revealed in Scripture or upon life from a scriptural perspective for the purpose of understanding, application, and prayer. So meditation is at the foundation of our spiritual life, is at the foundation of a growing, maturing, fruitful, spiritual experience with God and with His Word. But again, it's something that takes time. It's something that is directly attacked by social media, internet, and so forth. And, and it, it's, it's directly attacked uh, really in this way. I think there's a, a few ways, but because it, it attacks our ability to focus. It attacks our ability to focus, to think deeply. And, and again, meditation isn't just thinking about God. One said, a man may think of God every day and meditate on God no day. It's not simply thinking about God or that God is in my mind or I thought about God or somehow in the distance I'm always aware of God. That's not meditation. It's not simply reading scripture, simply thinking about God or even writing in a journal. Those, those, these can be part of it. It's to take a thought, a truth, a passage of scripture and give it sustained attention, prayer, chasing down its fullness. And again, our phones and access to the internet introduce significant complications to this process. It makes it very hard for us to have sustained focus and concentration. It produces short attention spans. Listen to this. One study installed a program on college students' laptops, I'm quoting here, that took a screenshot every five seconds. The researchers found, listen, that students switched between tasks every 19 seconds on average. Every 19 seconds on average. More than 75% of the students' computers, computer windows were open less than one minute. This is a very different experience from sitting and reading a book for hours. Now that context was in the context of reading. It was a secular author. But that can be directly applied to the issue of meditation. Phones, computers, and internet assault our ability to focus and to have sustained concentration, to keep and to hold a thought. And this reality is further exasperated by the influence in that same direction of TV, of media, commercials, music, online games, everything, which creates the constant need for motion. And again, it creates at least two challenges then to meditation, social media and such. First, it crowds our minds with a barrage of worldly distractions that assault our thinking, our minds, and our hearts. Edmund Calamy, writing from the 17th century, says this, Now when you meditate, you must not only retire yourselves from outward company, but from inward company. It is an easy matter to shut the doors of your closets and to be there alone, but it is a hard matter to shut out company from within, from your hearts as well as your closets. There are many men when they are alone in the garden or in the fields meditating or that are pestered with the company within, with its worldly thoughts, with voluptuous thoughts, that's sexual, with vain imaginations. Then drawing on the imagery of the plague of flies, he says, happy is that Christian that can do temple work without being pestered with these spiritual flies, with vain and roving thoughts. Can any of you identify with that? How many of you have gone to spend special time in prayer and no sooner do you go to pray and you have every trivial and distracting thought in the world that comes to your mind? 
That we have as a natural infirmity of our fallenness. He's writing that back in the 17th century, long before there were any of the things that we have today. But again, it's exacerbated by the fact of the internet and access with the phones and a whole culture that is designed to produce that in our thinking. This has been decried by many an observant cultural observer. Uh, But it is particularly applied as we think about our ability to meditate on Scripture. To hold a focused thought. To maintain a sustained argument as you read through Scripture. To pray with diligence. And to not get off track so every so often by distraction. Uh, Again, he writes this before there was radio, television, iPhones, and such. Yet the capacity of the heart for distraction and the skill of the devil in creating and encouraging it is great, even more so now. And again, it calls for unhurried time. Well, I'm going to jump here to the end just quickly uh, so we have time for the Lord's Supper. Uh, There's no substitute for time. We must discipline ourselves, our days, our weeks, our years, our schedules to have time to meditate. How do we get there? We must remove all distractions. We must pray for the Spirit's help. We must persevere and be patient. Let me me do this. Um, Let me just give a few other things. I don't want to end without mentioning these at least. So... We have the danger then of distraction and a killer of time with the internet and social media. And yet we need to discipline ourselves for godliness by putting those things aside and structuring in our lives, our spiritual lives, time for prayer, time for meditation, time for solitude and silence alone with God. Where we put everything else aside. Let me give some final thoughts of application and I'll just mention these. And these are suggestions. The first is this, that you and I, before we discuss anything else of practical import, need to first be clear on what our spiritual priorities are in our heart. What are our spiritual priorities? We must be clear on that. Secondly, we must establish these priorities practically in our lives and in our homes. We must know what our spiritual priorities are and then we must reflect this by how we structure our lives and our homes. Third, we must replace electronic time, I would suggest, with reading. If you're in a family with children, family games, reading aloud, audio books, other things. It's not simply a removal, but it is a replacement. Fourth, you could institute regular times of electronic fast and time parameters during the week. Could you do that? Could you imagine? I would challenge us. We've tried to do this in our home. We're not always 100% successful, but we're always fighting towards 100% success. But as we have for us, it's Sunday. Sometimes we take other days and we have electronic fast. There's no devices in the home, none that can be used. Again, we're not perfect at that, but we seek to be perfect. We stumble along the way. But what way could you in your life structure a time where you purposely, routinely put all devices away? And they're not only not in your hand or not being used, they're not in your presence in as much as you can do that. A regular time of electronic fast. What about with our children? What about with our children? 
Do you put time parameters on the week? Could you set a time where you go home and say, I'm not going to have my phone out or I'm not going to check media or the news after this point in the day? Discipline ourselves to wake up in the morning and say, I will not turn on my computer or check my phone outside of the alarm or whatever until I've spent time in prayer and in God's word. Fifthly, parents, consider waiting to give your child a smartphone particularly one with full service. Consider waiting. It's hard. There's peer pressure that goes along with it. And if, uh, whether in public or private school, many of the kids, even as young as seven and eight years old, have phones. It's an amazing thing. They have phones. We've adopted as a culture this unthinkingly. And the question that we have as parents, the responsibility is ask, should they? Should they have a phone? Should my teenager have a phone and unlimited access? Especially should they have access without any guards, any kind of security on it. We as parents need to take a more active role in the lives of our children and regulate how much time they have on the screen and how much access they have it. And for their own joy and for their own good, we need to teach them to delight in the discoveries of God's creation, i.e. getting outside. We need to encourage them to develop their mind through reading, through conversation. We must encourage them to develop interpersonal skills, not by retreating off in isolation by themselves, but coming together to play a game, to have a family conversation, to take a walk. But that involves discipline. It involves intentionality. And I would encourage us as parents to do it. Now, coming into the Lord's table. Above any warnings or suggestions, however, the foundational point again is this. We must be sure about what we believe is our greatest good and desire. If it's God himself, if it's his presence, his truth, his promises, if it's Christ, then we need to order our lives to that end. And it's that that we remember in the Lord's table this morning. Let me bring us into it as the men come forward, just with this reminder from Colossians. If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And with Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we will be revealed with him in glory. And it is to that end that the Lord's table points us this morning. So as the men come forward and Kathleen prays, or plays and prays, as she plays, um, we'll take the Lord's Supper. And remember before we hand out these elements that this is a time for believers and not only for believers, but believers who are actively pursuing righteousness in their life. So spend time with the Lord preparing your hearts along those ends as the men hand out the elements. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace that is in Christ. For in all of these things we fail, but you are so patient and long-suffering. Convict us where we fail and lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Help us to be wise in how we live out our spiritual lives in this culture and with our phones and with the internet and all of these things. Teach us discipline. But more than that, behind that discipline, set our affections so warmly and so resolutely on your glory and the things above, those things of eternal joys, the things for which and to which we have been saved. 
Fill our hearts with the glory of our inheritance in Christ and the glory of Christ and of you, Father, and of the Spirit. And to that end, we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.